0: Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the importance of social conservatives to the conservative movement, Bill Blair's attempt to grab your guns, and why university's not for everyone. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of The Andrew Lawton Show on True North, Canada's most irreverent talk show. The place for, well, irreverence. You heard it, that's what we're doing here. Thanks very much for all the support in the first week of the show. The first couple of episodes came out last week. We had great fun, Gad sad. Aaron Woodrick, lots of little fodder for discussion from Canada, from around the world, and it was an absolute delight, so thanks very much to all of you who tuned in, and to all of you who sent kind and encouraging and even less kind and less encouraging feedback. My personal favorite was from a YouTube commenter who took aim at my attempt to figure out the correct word for the collection of coins. I had a little bit of an aside. You may remember I was talking last week about the coins that the Royal Canadian Mint released that had two wolves that appeared to be engaged in the carnal act of lovemaking. And that was not the name of the coin, the carnal act of lovemaking series. That was, I think, two years ago with the nickels. But I was, you know, just spitballing and having fun with it, and I was deciding out loud what the proper word is for the collection of coins, and I was just kind of joking around, and I was like numismatics, numismatistry, and someone was very offended by the fact that I didn't just pick one and commit to it, that I on air decided to, you know, walk through the process like it was a spelling bee, and I'm like, it's meant to be fun, the show is meant to be a conversation, so thanks to anyone who gave feedback, uh, even that person, because they uh, at least reminded me of the need to have fun when you're doing stuff like this. And no one has sent me that coin, by the way. I mean, it's a $1,000, so I wasn't expecting it to show up, but you never know. You never know. Uh, you know, if you are interested in supporting the show, though, I assure you there are better ways to do it than with a $1,000 coin worth $250 worth of silver. So and that being said... All gifts are appreciated. Don't send me any gifts. I already have enough stuff. In any case, we are going to talk about a few things on the show today. I want to get to this comment that Pierre Polyev made that is certainly one that he's making, I think, to help his leadership ambitions, but one that I think harms the conservative movement in the long run. That's coming up uh, very shortly. Also, a bit of an update on the gun control plans from the liberals. Bill Blair has not announced anything new per se, but he He's given a little bit more of a basis for understanding how the liberals are going to target law-abiding gun owners. And a couple of other little odds and ends. In particular, I'm going to talk to Jordan Goldstein later on. He is a Laurier professor who was one of the ones who really amassed in that group of people supporting free speech a couple of years ago when Lindsay Shepard decided to take a stand for free speech. And he'll join me to talk about something not connected to the free speech fight necessarily, but a topic that I think people need to hear. And that is why university is not for everyone which is uh, common and self-evident, but I think an important point to stress, given that we still see schools forcing kids into that situation when it doesn't make sense, uh, it doesn't necessarily help them, depending on what they want, and in some ways it even hurts them, specifically financially. So we'll talk about that with Jordan Goldstein later on in the show. Uh, But just, I wanna have a bit of fun with this one because Donut Gate has, I don't know if it's a gate, it's probably not a gate, Uh, You know, gate is funny, though, because Kathy Shadel, who's a a blogger and a good friend of mine, she hates using gate because it's a Republican scandal. She prefers to use Quiddick behind everything because of, you know, Ted Kennedy's uh, Chapaquiddick driving uh, murder. And I I think it's actually great. I just always forget it until it's too late. So we'll call it donut Quiddick uh, to keep with Kathy Shadel's rule. Uh, you may have seen on Twitter Justin Trudeau in Winnipeg for the cabinet retreat decides to buy seven boxes of donuts from a Winnipeg bakery called O Donuts, and we'll call them True Donuts now because that's what they are. And the <laughs> the the donuts. I so okay. Let me just preface this by saying I don't think this is earth-shattering news. I think it's amusing, and I think it shows the value of political messaging. One of the three big things the cabinet members are talking about in Winnipeg is growing the middle class. Oh, Donuts charges $47 a dozen, which is just under $4 a donut. If you buy them individually, you're paying close to $5 a donut. So the idea of gorging on gourmet donuts while fighting for the middle class is an amusing little juxtaposition. Now, Trudeau goes, picks them up, says to O'Donuts that it is the way to keep us going through another full day of cabinet meetings. And to be honest, if I were going to be trapped in a a room full of liberal cabinet ministers for three days, I would need something to keep me going. Gourmet donuts may well be the answer to that question. He also tweets it in French, because you can't just pander uh, with your support of a local business in English, you have to do it in in both official languages. But I find it hilarious because the little sort of optics of these things, and I don't know whether the liberal caucus paid for this, whether the donut shop gave them for free or whether the government paid for it. I'm assuming it's probably the government because it's a cabinet retreat. But again, we're talking about, you know, even if they got seven dozen donuts, you know, 350 bucks, not a huge sum of money in the grand scheme of things. But the optics of these things matter in some respects. if you look at the Bevoda orange juice as one example. Bevoda, Harper Minister, pilloried for having $16 glass of orange juice at I think it was the Savoy. Was it the Savoy? I don't know who I'm asking. The Savoy Hotel in London, I believe. That sounds like where they would charge $16 dollars for a, an orange juice glass. And that relates to people in a way that 1.4 billion to the CBC doesn't necessarily. And I remember I had a story years ago where I found a minister had spent, I think it was like $17 at Jamba Juice to get two smoothies. And I had done a little fun tongue-in-cheek story about this saying, okay, the $16 orange juice was a national scandal. Why not the Jamba Juice? Why is that not a scandal as well? And it did get mentioned in the House of Commons, my story. It didn't make national headlines, but it did get mentioned in the House of Commons, so I may, I, I entered the Hansard record, which was just a, a lovely little treat there. But the one thing that I find hilarious about this is that, you know, a dozen donuts at Tim Hortons, $9.99, or something like that. A dozen from this O Donuts place, $47. They're probably great donuts, they're probably better donuts than the ones you get at Tim Hortons, and I do not begrudge anyone for enjoying the finer things of life. The problem that I have with it is that lawmakers are perpetually disconnected. And that's why stories like this do tend to go around the world as quickly as they do, or around the country at least, because the middle class is like, you know, I I don't pay $5 a pop for donuts. Why are you on my dime while you're talking about all of this stuff? And I know there are a bunch of people saying, is this really news? No, it's not news. It's interesting and it's fun. And I think that if Justin Trudeau wants to tweet about it to say, oh, look at me. I'm, you know, buying fancy hipster donuts, then we get to say, ha, ha, ha. The joke's on you. That That's the trade-off. If you put it out there, they get to criticize it for, uh, as well. In any case, we are not going to talk about True Donuts anymore. Although I'm curious because the website of the Donut Place lets you, I think for a dollar fifty or something, extra upgrade it. And I don't know if the Liberals splurged on the extra sprinkles. That is the question that I think needs to lead, question period. That is the question that the conservative leadership candidates must really be driving for an answer to. <laughs> Uh, On the note of the leadership, let's talk about Pierre Polyev for a moment here, because this is a guy who I think is quickly emerging as one of the front runners in the leadership race, despite not having actually thrown his name into the hat formally in the leadership race. And Pierre Polyev has decided to draw a firm line in the sand on social conservative issues and say not going to be a part of my leadership campaign and not going to be a part of the conservative party if I am elected to lead it. Now, this comes from La Presse. And in an interview, Polyev says he supports gay marriage, period. He said he voted against it 15 years ago, but he learned a lot. Like millions and millions of people across Canada and around the world, I find that gay marriage is a success. The institution of marriage must be open to all citizens regardless of their sexual orientation. Now, this is a statement that if it's true, I think is great. If it's true, this is what he believes, I think that's fine. He has had to do what Andrew Scheer was called on to do, which is explain how you get from point A, which was voting against something, to point B, which is saying that you have no problem with it. And Andrew Shear's issue on this was a lack of clarity. He couldn't quite articulate what it was that he thought, felt, wanted to do. Whereas Pierre Palliev was saying... That's what I thought. I've learned a lot. I think game, game marriage is fine. I think it's great. I think it's a success. That is a, a much firmer line than I'm not going to touch it. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm just a, 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 which, which was kind of how Andrew Shear's position came across at time. Now, to be clear. I think that the bigger problem with Pierre Polyev's comments is not about the gay marriage issue, but how he's going to view anyone who believes these things that are different than what he believes in the caucus. And, And that's where we get to the abortion question, which was also a part of this interview. He says that any conservative government he would lead would never introduce a bill on this issue, but he would go further and ensure that no bill, even a private member's bill, would ever pass either. There are two ways to read this. He's saying that he'll ensure that he blocks a private member's bill by voting against it and ensuring his caucus does, or he just won't even let it make it to the floor. That's the alternative to this. But he's basically saying that no conservative MP under his leadership, under his government, will be permitted to push a legislation like this forward and have it be voted on based on conscience rights. Because one way or another, whether it's blocking it from debate or just voting against He's saying, this is not going to pass if I have my way about it. Now, this is huge. And and I think that there are a couple of reasons for this. Number one, this goes basically to the Justin Trudeau position, which is not even just, you know, I as a leader and my party as a government is not going to do this. But I am going to make sure that individual MPs who have these conscientious beliefs don't get to act or govern or legislate on them or vote. Their conscience on them either. And that's very dangerous for a conservative party because the conservative party is the only party in which a sizable portion of its membership is social conservatives. And that's a, a huge problem for Pierre Polyev. If you look at the numbers from the last conservative leadership race, and, I, and I'm going to pull these up because I know I've cited them before, but I think it bears repeating here. In 2017, there were social conservative votes that at the end of the race accounted for 14.3% towards Brad Trost. And ultimately at the end, 50.95% of the votes went to Andrew Scheer. Of those, I don't know how many were were social conservative. But in the 11th round of of balloting, 30.28% of the votes cast were for Andrew Scheer. 14.3% of the votes cast were for Brad Trost. Of those two, that is 44% or 44.6% almost of the votes in the leadership race at that particular juncture that were for a social conservative. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that not every sheer voter was a social conservative. I get that. But they were at least open to a social conservative, and many of them, in fact, held those beliefs as well. But even if you just take the Brad Trost numbers or before uh, it was just Brad Trost, Brad Troston, and Pierre Lemieux, you're talking about a big chunk of the Conservative Party membership and the Conservative Party base right here that believe in some set of socially conservative values. Now, in some cases, it might be opposition to abortion. In some cases, it might be about the transgender and gender identity discussions. In other cases, it may even be that they have a a moral objection to gay marriage. No one in the party is talking about legislating on gay marriage. No one. No one is talking about touching it. And in, in fact, even Andrew Shear, who I think the media was trying to brand a, as this huge homophobe, was not interested in going after any of these things that were settled matters of law, even abortion. But the problem is that the only way to get any traction on these issues, any discussion on these issues, is by allowing backbenchers who believe these things to stand up and and say it. And this happened in Stephen Harper's government. Stephen Harper was resistant to the conservatives really touching abortion as a party and his government as a government doing it. And I think that behind the scenes, there were a number of situations where stuff was stymied or, or held back, but still when push came to shove, pro-life MPs like Stephen Woodworth, Harold Albrecht, Rod Bernouge, a sizable pro-life caucus, were able to put forward motions. And there was very successful work that was done on this file. I mean, some things that ultimately didn't go where we wanted them to go, like the Unborn Victims of Crime Act, which was a great legislation, uh, or the motion that Stephen Woodworth wanted to basically have a discussion in Canada. And this was a motion that I think, why would we turn down the opportunity to revisit something that Parliament has never explored uh, to the depths that it should have? And all of these different things, which should have been part of the free exchange of ideas, now under a Pierre Polyev government, it sounds like, would be banned, would would be no longer... And this is going, as I said, far beyond even the Andrew Scheer position, far beyond the Stephen Harper position. This appears on the surface to be the Justin Trudeau position, which is that you only get to talk about the issues that the leader says you can talk about. And that is not the way you grow a party. That's not the way you respect freedom. And more importantly, that's not the way you win over the conservative base and the conservative membership because every vote you pick up on the left you have to lose one on the right. And there's a lot more competition for votes in the center and votes on the left. And this isn't to say that leadership candidates and leaders don't need to compromise, reach across the aisle. But I think that the social conservative problem in Canada right now, the way the media presents it, is a communications problem more than a beliefs problem. This is a hugely distinct issue. The way that the right communicates its beliefs on social issues versus what they actually think about it. And sure, the media is always going to jump up and down and say that, oh, Andrew Shearer is evil because he thinks this or that this person's evil because they think this. But in a lot of cases, people will reward an honest and transparent accounting of what you believe and why. And you have to articulate it on your terms, but you can never shy away from it. You can never hide your beliefs if your beliefs are a cornerstone of who you are. The fact is there are millions of Canadians who are religious and hold religious beliefs. There are millions of Canadians who are pro-life, some of them for religious reasons, others for entirely distinct reasons from religion and from faith. There are Canadians that have all sorts of differing opinions on transgender identity issues right now, and this is being presented to us as the next frontier in these sorts of identity-based discussions. And all of these issues need to be tackled by lawmakers that are unafraid to realize there are different beliefs and different perspectives on these matters. And that doesn't mean they have to pander to every group but it means they have to understand that there are different viewpoints out there and for any leadership candidate for any political leader to say we are prohibiting people that believe certain things from speaking up on those issues if they want to be in our caucus they are actually saying to canadians that have these views millions of them in fact your views are not welcome in politics your views are not welcome in government And the problem with that, while it is certainly a political tactic that may reward in the media, is that there are millions of Canadians out there who are going to say, well, why are you worthy of my vote then? Why are you worthy of my support? Why are you worthy of my money? And that's the issue that Conservative members now get to decide as they decide who the leadership candidates are going to be that get their vote on this ranked ballot. And social conservatives are already saying, okay, Pierre Palliev's off my ballot because he's not even going to let my local MP, who's pro-life, speak up and introduce a private member's bill or vote on a private member's bill. Now, I've said time and time again, we're going to be interviewing the leadership candidates. And I, this is something I want to talk to Pierre about. I think Pierre has a lot of good that he's offering. I am fully prepared to accept that there may be more to this that hasn't been reported. And I want to know about free votes. Will he allow free votes? And I want to know what the true position is, not just on social issues. I don't care if he's pro-choice, pro-life, all of that stuff. But I want to know, is he going to accept that these different groups make up a big part of the conservative party? And Aaron O'Toole, who's not a a social conservative by any stretch, has come out already and said, listen, I'm I'm a unifier. I realize that the big blue tent has social conservatives in it. I think all conservatives of all stripes are welcome. And this was in response to a a great piece that Sean Spear had in the National Post about how social conservatives cannot be excluded from the discourse. And we might have to, to talk to Sean Spear about that in a future show. So to Pierre Polyev, be very careful what you wish for, because the media may be demanding a social conservative free zone for conservatives. But this is at the very least, 15% of the conservative membership that is probably going to go elsewhere now. We'll talk about this, I'm sure, more in the weeks and months to come. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Last week, I spoke a little bit about CBC's bias, and this is just a classlessness story From CBC now, John Crosby, the former lieutenant governor of Newfoundland, passed away and had deservedly, I'd say, a state funeral. Now, John Crosby was an Atlantic Canadian conservative. And when we were talking in the first segment about social conservatives, he he was a guy that basically stood up for the values of old school Toryism. He wasn't an ideologue in the sense that we see some people in the conservative movement now. But he was still on the right. He was still a decent man and an honorable man. And this is the headline that CBC runs with in one particular column. John Crosby is dead and gone. Our red Tory values a thing of the past? Now, this was by John Gushu from CBC News whose last name I, I probably mispronounced, but I don't want to repeat the numismatics thing and, and you know, anger people by just trying to say myriad, myriad pronunciations of it. The story itself, the article itself, I didn't find terrible. I, I guess I questioned why John Crosby's death had to become about a political reckoning in the conservative movement. My issue is with the headline, and I'll, I'll give you a glimpse behind the curtain of the media here. Reporters, columnists rarely, in fact, almost never write the headlines that's always done by an editor and it's believe me it's infuriating as a writer when I have a column that gets butchered by the headline which is the only thing some people read and then they're yelling at me for something I didn't even write that doesn't necessarily reflect the makeup of the story but besides the point CBC editorial staff in some form published this headline John Crosby is dead and gone Are Red Tory Values a Thing of the Past? And this was on January 18th. Now, the photo accompanying the story was the photo of his ashes being walked through the Anglican Church. And this was, you know, just a week after he died. And, you know, dead and gone is just such a very callous way of describing a man who accomplished a lot more than just simply being a standard bearer for Red Tories. And I hate the politicization of everything. I hate the politicization of people's death. I hate all of this. And this is why John McCain's passing in the US was so infuriating the way the media responded to it because they were making it about this fight with Trump. And in some cases, John McCain's family, I I realized by making certain decisions about his funeral, uh, emboldened that. But it was just such a, a problem. For me to see this guy's passing distilled to a feud when he had such a life of service, and John Crosby, same thing. Here's a guy that did so much, and to CBC, his death is just about oh, why can't all conservatives be like John Crosby now and then, uh, complaining about you know the state of the conservative movement in Canada. I've had a, a few people email me already this Globe and Mail story about Bill Blair's comments. On guns, And I I, I don't want to spend too much time on it because it's not really new information in the grand sense of things, but I think does explain a little bit about how the government is planning to go after your guns. Now, if you've watched videos I've done for True North, you know I'm a gun owner, you know I'm an AR-15 owner. And I will defend the AR-15 to anyone at any point because it's one of the most misunderstood fixtures of gun ownership when people in the media, and even some people who are are generally sympathetic to gun owners, start talking about the AR-15 as being this, you know, Gatling gun almost, when in in fact it's very much the same gun as as several non-restricted firearms in Canada that no one has issues with. But uh, Bill Blair has targeted and the liberals have targeted military style assault weapons. And I'm putting giant air quotes around that if you're listening to the podcast version, <laughs> military style assault weapons, which have not yet been defined. And the funny thing is, the reason Bill Blair has not defined these things is because he says he doesn't want people to go out and buy them now. So what gun owners are doing now is buying anything they think might be banned. That's why I got my AR-15 uh, a few months ago. And the Mini-14, which is a hunting rifle, is another one that the government has indicated with a wink-wink might in fact be banned. But we do know now that they're going to do it in a multi-step process. The first step will be prohibiting the sale of of these guns, which the Globe and Mail unquestioningly refers to as assault weapons, which frustrates me to no end because that's not what they are. Assault weapons, already illegal in Canada. And then the other dimension will be after the prohibition of sale, forcing a buyback, which means earmarking at the current step anyway 250 million but it'll probably be more to buy back the guns like mine that are already owned by people now the funny thing is it would be great to know how much they're offering because i could probably make a fortune if i just bought you know a crate load of these things now if the government was buying back at above market price but you know what? That, getting into business with the government will never do well. I think Candace uh, said the other day it's a lose-lose situation doing business with the government. But Blair did say the government wants to get good value, another air quote moment there, for the pur- purchase of firearms that were legally bought. And this quote just is infuriating. We are very mindful we are dealing with law-abiding Canadians, and I want to make sure they are treated fairly and respectfully. Then why take the guns? What, like, if you're conceding that these people from whom you are taking the guns, these people you are disarming, are not the problem, that these people are causing no problems. So, when Bill Blair says he wants to make sure that people are treated fairly and respectfully and adds, I have nothing but respect for those who have been adhering to those regulations, why are you going after them? Why do you need their guns? And this whole thing is an absolute sham to give the illusion of security to a country that does not have a gun crime problem, to target firearms that are not the way they're being described, and more importantly, to demand people who Bill Blair concedes are following the law to lay down their arms, hand them back to the government just because the government says, we've decided to take up this pretend fight to protect Canadians. Unreal undemocratic, and absolutely asinine. This is what Bill Blair is doing here. So prohibit first, then buy back, and then eventually go after the illegal guns. And this is, my goodness, the worst part of this is that there is an element of what the liberals are going to be doing here about restricting the availability of illegal guns on the street. But it's like an also- And also, we're going to do this moment. The Globe and Mail story says Blair also promised new legislation to further restrict the availability of illegal handguns on Canadian streets. He also said there will be tougher penalties for those who smuggle handguns into Canada, as well as for those who take handguns from a legal source and divert them into the hands of the criminals. So the aspect of this legislation that actually could be positive going after crime guns and criminals is an afterthought because the government wants to stand over a giant warehouse full of legally owned AR-15s and other guns and say, mission accomplished, Canada's safer. It will be a lie. Back in a moment with more of The Andrew Lawton Show. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Hey, welcome back to the program. It's getting a little bit worked up talking about all the gun stuff. So we'll we'll simmer down a little bit until next episode. No guarantees what'll happen then. And I, I actually want to talk about this Twitter thread that I saw the other day that I, I thought was really interesting. and And it's not newsy, but I think there's a lot to learn from this. And it deals with this fundamental question of whether post-secondary education is for everyone. And I think most people listening, certainly to this show, would say, no, it's not. But we still have this societal problem where schools, uh, secondary schools, are pushing people into that narrative. And more importantly, post-secondary institutions themselves are really marketing themselves as being the places for everyone and it can be a very costly endeavor and more importantly it can take people away from career paths that are perfectly legitimate and actually should be encouraged And the Twitter thread was from Jordan Goldstein, a a sport humanities professor from Laurier. And I'll let him explain a little bit about this story, but I, I thought it was a very encouraging and I'll even say inspiring story. Professor Jordan Goldstein joins me on the line now. We couldn't get the video working, but he joins me by audio form. Jordan, good to talk to you. Thanks very much for coming on, Professor.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for extending uh, the invitation and the opportunity, Andrew. It's great to talk.
0: You posted something on Twitter that uh, that I found to be really insightful. I mean, you always do. I would encourage you to give Jordan a follow there, JB underscore Goldstein. But in particular this, and and part of it because there was, I think, just some innate wisdom in the story you told, but also you as a professor telling it. And I was wondering if you could bring my listeners up to speed on uh, this conversation you had with a student.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, a student that that, that I taught, um, uh, I believe it was last year, emailed me um, looking for some advice and looking for a, a recommendation on sort of where they should go next in their university career. And they were reaching a, a pivot point or a turning point in their career. They had been in this uh, student had been enrolled uh, in a particular program for two years, um, didn't see the merit, didn't see the value. Um, and was looking to switch and was looking for some new direction, um, and they came to my to my office um, to, to just to get some advice and to look um, to see what other options there were in terms of prolonging their university career. And I simply asked them, you know, uh, what do you see yourself doing here? What is your academic uh, passion? Like, what do you really want to learn? And the student really couldn't come up with that much of an answer and started relating that. They had a lot of passions that laid outside of the university, um, and that's where this particular student's interest lied, and I simply told them, you know, well, maybe university is not the place for you. Maybe this is a time for you to cut and run, because this particular student was in a pretty good financial situation uh, and had good uh, prospects for, for a job outside of the academy, and this is something that student didn't encounter from anybody else within the university system. And they greatly uh, respected uh, my opinion and my sort of cutting to the straight truth of the matter that not everybody needs to be at a university or indeed even belongs at a university. And there's no shame um, or guilt or uh, stigma that should be attached to somebody, you know, who's come through uh, and maybe it's found out that, that this isn't the place for them
0: and I think that's such an important point because on, on one side of the spectrum, you do have people that are just completely anti-universities, and I think there's there's there are some no offense to you, there are some good reasons to be anti-universities these oh, days, absolutely, absolutely. But then you also have people that I think are, are more ingrained in the post sec, or in the secondary education world and the post-secondary education world, which is this idea that university is, is for everyone. And and I saw this when I was in high school. I I went to a, a school that was very focused on its performance. And it was a pretty good school as far as academic performance for students. And I remember in grade nine, there was a speech that the principal gave which was that 90% of you are going to go to university when you get out of here, Uh, 5% of you are going to go to college, and 5% of you are going to take a year to figure it out, and and basically you're going to go to university anyway. And that school was pushing everyone, regardless of aptitudes, regardless of interest, towards university. And when I talk to youth now... It seems like that's expanded even more, where we're thrusting everyone we can think of, anyone who can afford it, anyone who can get accepted, into this world that just isn't for everyone and doesn't seem to be designed to be a world for everyone.
1: Uh, No, that's absolutely true. And the way that it's been designed in the past is to sort of uh, cater to those with a particular intellectual aptitude and uh, curiosity. And I never understood the thought process behind forcing people who didn't enjoy their time in elementary school or secondary school, who don't enjoy a really academic um, environment, that magically that they would find their way in a university setting, which is just an even more intense and pressurized situation when you include uh, cost when you include deferring um, important years where you could be out gaining work experience or or, are engaged in other life experiences that could be just as enriching and rewarding and valuable than uh, the first few years of an undergraduate uh, education at a university. Um, And I I, I guess that's just been exacerbated uh, over time. And I certainly Uh, remember hearing those same things in my post-secondary education that you just related as well.
0: And certainly there is a cliche that is true to some extent of people with arts and humanities or social sciences, undergraduate degrees who are making less than those who went in to be welders or millwrights or other things like that. And, And similarly, I don't think that the trades are for everyone. I think the greater question that we should be asking is, What do you want? And if the answer to that question is, I don't know yet, I feel that that often lends itself in the eyes of school guidance counselors to, okay, we'll go to university and then figure it out while you're there.
1: Yeah, and that's an expensive lesson (laughs) uh, for for kids to have to learn. And especially, you know, if you've gone into student debt to, you know, find yourself, uh, it doesn't make much of a, it's not a very good economic calculation when (laughs) you could maybe spend a year working, Maybe go abroad, travel, uh, find yourself out there, but don't put yourself in a financial hole. And then realize afterwards, maybe university is the right place for me and come with a more mature, serious attitude instead of, well, I'm just sort of here to find myself. So I don't necessarily have to apply uh, all of my energy into school and I should focus more on socializing uh, or the other the many other activities that schools now provide that are non-academic for students.
0: Let me ask you then if we need to have a discussion within the academy and outside of it, About the role of universities, because I think there are some people that take a very means to an end view of it where they want to be a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer, and the way to get that degree is to go through this program. There are a lot of people that get a degree because they want it to make them marketable to employers, and there are employers that are, for whatever reason, saying no matter what it is, you need to have a degree in something. Do you think that these two are feeding off of each other in some way?
1: Yes, I do. I think the over-credentialization has been very, um, I think it's very bad for the university because it, it waters down uh, and it sort of cheapens what a degree signals. And now it's sort of just a signal that I can show up and I can pass, um, so I can do something. But in in my estimation, four years of work experience is actually a better signal um, than, a, than a bachelor's degree in a general science or a general arts um, because of the the lowering of standards at a university because of having to accept every student and having to accommodate to those who don't find a passion or have a particular aptitude for academic materials, um, which again is not a slight and it's not meant to disparage those. Um, who aren't comfortable who, or may not excel at a university setting. Um, everybody has different strengths and weaknesses and it's the, the variability of human talent uh, that allows us to have such um, a, productive, uh, a productive society and productive economy because we do have many different people with different skills. And the one thing that I've really noticed, and I, I'll speak just to my experience in, in Ontario, uh, where we don't have a variety of post-secondary institutions. And whatever variety we did have has been forced into uh, a conformity. And we can just look at my uh, my employer, my university, Wilfrid Laurier University, which used to be an excellent undergraduate-focused university, which meant that they didn't have an expanded graduate program, and they really did tailor towards a specific um, demographic. But now they've positioned away from that specialty and tried to become more like all of the other universities in Ontario, comprehensive research universities with graduate programs. And they're expanding out into Milton to try to get into um, programs like engineering, for example. We don't have an engineering school, but there's a school down the road, Waterloo University, which is internationally acclaimed uh, for its engineering. And it doesn't make any sense to try to make every single university in this province exactly the same as every other university. And I think that's where some of the problem lies with post-secondary education is we don't have we don't have different options for students. We have uh, colleges, And we have universities, but all the colleges are basically the same. And all the universities now are are basically the same. So students don't have very many places to go. Uh, And so you you force students who may have fit in one type of a university. And I don't know exactly what types of post-secondary schools we could have. Uh, That's something I would would prefer to let the market decide and to let consumers demand uh, and for entrepreneurs to provide for them. Uh, but we simply just don't have that option in this province where it seems like we can only have one type. Every university has to be the same. And I think this really discourages students and it it, it limits uh, the options that are available to them so that we may have a student right, who could have excelled in a, a maybe a more practical kind of a, of a university setting. Um, the student that came into my office, for example, but because now all the universities in Ontario are research comprehensive universities, uh, they don't focus on the undergraduates as much, and they try to compete um, with for, with all the other universities for research dollars, for grants, uh, and for things that don't necessarily benefit uh, the undergrads. Uh, and I think that's to their detriment.
0: So if you are looking at the paths in universities outside of medical school, law school, outside of certification or credential based programs. What is the role of an undergraduate university education in your view?
1: I think it's to provide a a wide range of of practical skills, but not to train for a particular career. Like, I don't think you want universities to be turned into vocational um, institutions And I think when you tell everybody that they have to go to university, and the reason they have to go to university is because they'll be able to get a better job, that's exactly what you've done. And certainly some programs do lend themselves to practical employment, some of the ones that you mentioned. Um, But a general uh, humanities, uh, any of the humanities or or, or social sciences, and uh, I've got my degrees in history, um, so I, I can sort of speak to that. I don't think you want to tailor those to careers or to professions or even to the idea that this is something that can aid you um, to get a better job, you want those programs to be centered on learning and education and in investing in academic matters. And so the humanities should be able to provide you with uh, skills in writing, with skills in um, oral communication, with um, critical thinking skills. And, and by that, I mean the ability to look at a situation from multiple viewpoints, uh, weigh the pros and the cons of each viewpoint and come to a sort of a synthesized conclusion uh, about where you stand on that on that position, based on the best evidence from multiple perspectives, and people who can do that can find employment uh, in, in a whole host and range of of professions. They can be entrepreneurs. They can be involved in corporate work. Um, they can even pre- um, mesh those skills with more technical, uh, practical skills and in, in, in mechanical um, processes. It's it's really limitless. Um, and, and companies and, and people used to, used to uh, clamor for the skills that a humanities education could provide. But there's been a, a, certainly a transition in what the humanities offers, um, both in terms of its um, ideological roots, but also in terms of trying to turn these non-vocational, pardon me, these non-vocational disciplines, into something that can provide a particular career, Uh, development uh, opportunities for people. And I think the mixed signaling that students receive uh, further confuses them and further frustrates them uh, with the system when they're being told that these programs will provide them access to better jobs. And so they take on debt. And then when they get out into the marketplace, they realize that employers don't want the particular skills that they've been given (laughs) Uh, or uh, in some cases indoctrinated <laughs> into and now uh, they're they're on the hook for tens of thousands of dollars of debt and they don't have very good employment prospects. Uh, so this really, It really does seem as if students are being placed at a disadvantage from multiple positions um, from the modern university, at least from my vantage point.
0: And there was a a great piece in Spiked that I think you tweeted out as well. The best place to learn about responsibility, self-respect and duty and about standing on your own two feet is in the workplace. And you had said that you had you learn more about the real world in your job at 15 as a dishwasher than school taught you at that time.
1: Uh, Oh, yeah. I mean. Absolutely. And, and you know, I've been working continuously uh, ever since in a whole range and host of odd jobs. And I worked uh, part time, many hours in in university as well um, to help provide for myself. And the price of education, I think, is really um, and, and why that's gone up. I mean, there's many different theories. I would point to government interference, uh, yeah. certainly in, in limiting the availability of New universities, when was the last, again, we'll just look at Ontario, where it's a highly regulated industry. When was the last time Ontario got a new university? You know, I think it was 50 years ago.
0: Yeah, and, and in Canada, we don't have that industry of, of private colleges and universities like you have to somewhat of a, a greater extent in the US.
1: Yes, and, and certainly there are pitfalls and dangers with a for-profit model, as you've seen with some schools in the United States. But that doesn't mean that there can also be beneficial and positive um, mm-hmm. institutions that operate using that model as well. And I think that the limiting, we could just look at that as a way in which competition has been um, essentially eliminated for the universities in Canada, which gives them more of a captive um, Uh, consumer base which means they can they can raise their prices in one sense but also things like guaranteed loans for students help to drive up the price of tuition and you see that really intensified in the United States and we don't we don't necessarily have uh, quite that problem in Canada although it is it is starting to creep up in terms of the the increased cost uh, of of tuition and and just a year's worth of of resources at a university and in that case you used to be, you used to hear all the time of people working their way, you know, through university. So on one hand, you would be getting work experience and you would have your feet, you know, planted in the real world, but you'd also be able to invest yourself in the more esoteric and academic matters of the university. And now it seems as if students are are being told they have to choose one or the other. And if you choose work, well, that means you're probably going to end up worse off in life is is the message that that you're being told. Uh, So you better go on to university, you better... You better not. If you better not divide your time. Like you want to throw yourself in and do give everything um, that a university or experience everything that a university has to offer. And a lot of it is being focused on things outside of the classroom. If you just look at the way administrations um, advertise universities, the things that they point to. Again, for undergrads, they're being sold on all these different things that they can experience. But at the same time, administrations are doing everything they can to uh, minimize the effectiveness of undergraduate education by focusing all their attention on acquiring research grants, bringing in faculty who care more about research uh, than teaching, uh, eliminating full-time faculty instead of um, part-time contractual and um, adjunct faculty. You're seeing... uh, universities move away um, from providing solid tenured professors who will teach undergraduates and especially first and second years. And so in sometimes the most important courses, you know, those first and second year courses, students are coming in and being taught by people without secure uh, jobs. Uh, And I'm not somebody who thinks that you are owed a, a secure job, but it's just sort of a it's very difficult as somebody who works from contract to contract myself it's very difficult to place roots down in an institution and to feel loyal uh, and to want to really work uh, to the best of your ability to extend ties into the community and develop uh, solid relationships uh, that you can then utilize in the classroom and instead adjuncts are are worried about how am i going to get my next contract and maybe they're working at two to three institutions so they're splitting their time And the students, right, these vulnerable first and second year students, those who maybe they don't think they should be there in the first place, they're not being taught by people with uh, the right expertise, acumen, or even the stability to be able to uh, transition and steer them through the very difficult first and second years of of university. And uh, as somebody who does teach first and second years, and I actually, um, I relish that opportunity um, because I know that these uh, these students need a little bit of extra transition, uh, I find that the high schools are not preparing them for the rigors and the demands that are necessary. And so there is a little bit of tactful coaching that some of the students really need in order to help them. And I don't think it's – I try not to to place the blame so much on the individual students, so much on the, the structures and systems and incentives mm-hmm. that they've been um, – that they've been um, uh, essentially yeah they
0: they've been sold a bill of goods on this I,
1: I I really do and I wait until the students show me that they don't deserve that um, sort of uh, benefit <laughs> of the doubt yeah uh,
0: because see it, that's a all, life again, lesson you don't get, get in university once, either
1: yeah once you get here you're supposed to be an adult and if you know and I I, I give you a little bit of a grace period uh, and you don't take advantage and you start to display disrespectful behaviors or contemptuous behaviors or or. Uh, simply just unserious behaviors when it comes to the gravity of the work that you should be doing, you know, you lose that benefit of the doubt as a student. Um, but at the same time, I want to be cognizant that these students, uh, I think are being set up in a lot of cases for failure um, by the system, both post-secondary uh, and the secondary and elementary schools. Um, and so I try I try to try to balance those competing uh, incentives and those competing, uh, circumstances when it comes to the the group versus the individual for sure it's 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 tough but I, I tend to I tend to sympathize more with the students and come down harder on the adults who have created the situation.
0: For sure. Well, fascinating dialogue. And I, I think for everyone's sake, it's good that this student went to you for counsel instead of some of your uh, colleagues, perhaps. Professor Jordan Goldstein, Sport Humanities Prof. You can follow him on Twitter at JB underscore, underscore Goldstein. Jordan, thanks for coming on. Good to talk to you again.
1: Yeah, great. It's always good to reconnect. And uh, thanks a lot, Andrew. And good luck on uh, the the launching of your new podcast. I'm sure uh, Canadians and those who are interested in the things you talk about are going to be really, uh, are going to really enjoy uh, what you bring to the table.
0: Well, you've earned yourself an invite back for that. Thanks a lot, Jordan. All
1: right. Thanks so much. Have a great day, Andrew. Thanks.
0: We'll be right back with more of The Andrew Lawton Show up next. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. That was Sport Humanities Professor Jordan Goldstein from Laurier University, the hotbed of the free speech fight in Canada, a fight on which he is very much on the right side. So my thanks to Jordan for coming on the show. My thanks to all of you for tuning into the show. We'll be back in a couple of days with more of The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada.
1: Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.